Hello, I'm Zach Berger, and this is my podcast, Making Sense of Medicine and Other Complicated Things. And I have a wonderful guest with me today on the phone. This is Sam Brown. He's Assistant Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of Utah School of Medicine and founder and director of the Center for Humanizing Critical Care at Intermountain Medical Center. He's a practicing ICU physician, medical researcher, and historian of ideas. And we're going to talk about um, his wide-ranging intellectual interests. And I'd like to start off by talking about his new book, or your new book, Sam. So thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, I'm always glad to talk to you, Zach. Um, and this book is called Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human. And obviously, I read it um, as a person as a person and as a loved one of, of family members or friends that have been in the ICU, but also as a physician. And I, as an internal medicine physician, someone that sees adults um, from across the spectrum, but usually relatively healthy people, people with a wide range of medical problems, but people that can walk and talk and, and perform many activities of life. When I hear the phrase ICU medicine, I have to tell the truth, I get this heart sink. And and I think one of the claims you're making in the book, it's just to start it with your, your general summary of it maybe, is that it's a bad place, but it's gotten significantly better. I mean, there are many bad things that happen there, but, but from the technical aspect, there's been a, a really major change in past decades on, on the quality and, and the, the, the of care and the outcomes associated with care over the past decade. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's true. I think we tend to focus on the fact that the nation is getting older, so more older people are running intensive care units. But if you look back at the last 30 years, you see syndromes like ARDS or septic shock that used to be 80% fatal are now only 15 to 20% fatal. So we've made these incredible technical improvements in our care of people who are quite sick. And the debates about what, what it means to use intensive care in a person with late-stage dementia in their late 80s often clouds the relevant fact that in terms of technical capacity, intensive care units are phenomenal. And I tell you that I, as a person who works in intensive care, absolutely love the fact that we have this treatment that really can change substantially the course of once fatal illnesses and get people not just six extra months, but can get people 10, 20, 30 years. What, what we've been missing, and another thing that I try to make clear in the book, is an awareness of both the human toll that it takes on survivors and their families and the human toll that it takes on people who don't survive and their families. And there's this risk that I talk about in the book that I think Dan Callahan, one of the founders of bioethics, first clearly elaborated about 20 years ago, that we can deform deaths. There are people who are already in life's final phase who end up in an ICU almost by accident. And in those circumstances, these marvelous medical technologies that we've refined over the last 30 years can do human damage to people in the process of dying. And I think we tend to want it to be one thing or the other. We want the ICU to be this horrible place that always represents 
high-tech medicine where a low-tech solution is better, or on the other hand, we want to see the ICU as only a place where rescue can happen. But the reality is that people arrive at the ICU without a label attached to their shirt saying, I will definitely die or I will definitely survive my ICU experience. So I'm calling, and, and part of the reason that I wrote the book in a non-technical way with careful attention to lots of stories and narratives to make it accessible to non-physician readers while still including footnotes that addressed the scientific questions that physician readers would have was so that I could model this practice of collaboration and walking through the experience together because we have to be able to walk through that experience that I call using an old Hebrew Bible metaphor, the valley of shadows together. And if we do that, we can start to make sense of the times where ICU is a good and marvelous and miraculous thing, and times when the ICU primarily represents a failure of communication and a risk of deforming death. How, um, how good are doctors now at distinguishing between those patients for whom cure is possible and those for whom care rather than cure should be the priority. I know you go into this at length in the book, but what's your, what's your general take? Well, the reality is that we're not very good at predicting the future, and there's great work that's been done recently by Doug White's group. He was in San Francisco now at Pittsburgh looking at how we not only make our predictions but communicate about our predictions. That there, there's some evolving data that's always at risk for the self-fulfilling prophecy that suggests that people are rather more likely to die if the doctor predicts that they're likely to die than if the doctor does not predict that they're likely to die. But what tends to get missed is that the probabilities of death associated with the doctor's pessimism may be as high as 90% probability of death or maybe as low as 50% probability of death. Neither of those is something you would want to face if you could avoid it. There's a risk of great sadness regardless, but for most of us, the difference between a 10 and a 50% chance of survival is quite substantial. And for a lot of people, the difference, frankly, between 2 or 3% chance of survival and a 10% chance of survival is substantial enough that they would be willing to undertake that risk even if the burdens of therapy were high. And, and I think that what happens so often is that we as clinicians understand the world from a clinician's viewpoint. It's a natural human behavior. It's very hard to get into the world outside your head. But I think particularly where we're talking about these important life and death decisions and the shape of a person's life and the wrapping up of that life, it's crucially important that we do step outside our heads and see the world from the patients and families perspective. If somebody has a 90% mortality and a 10% survival, and that survival is likely to be reasonable and in accord with that person's aspirations for a meaningful life, that 
means that we as clinicians have to treat nine people who die despite our attempts to get them through it. We have to mourn at some level those nine people in order for that one person to have recovered. That's the clinician's view on it. The patient's view on it is if you're honest with me and supportive and you attend to my needs as we make it through, I am willing to risk an uncomfortable death if we have a 10% chance of recovery. And that's, that's where I think not only is it true that we're not very good at prognosticating at relevant thresholds as physicians, it's also true that even when we prognosticate, it's very difficult to step from our heads to the patient's heads to see the world from their perspective. And in the book, I try to lay out ways for clinicians to be able to take some of that grief and sadness and distress around those deaths and consecrate it to their service to all their patients and in particular be able to feel at peace about the great work that they do as they watch not only the kindness offered to those who ultimately die but also the the simple biomedical successes, the people whose bodies and minds and lives really are snatched from the hands of, of death. I think these two truths that you just mentioned, you know, I come across them a lot in my realm in medicine, which is generally speaking less life and death and less fraught than the ICU realm, and also in other areas of life too, the fact that we can't predict the future and that our prognostic powers are very limited and that we need to communicate, nevertheless, some estimate of risk, some category to the people we're trying to help, whether it's in medicine or in other areas. And I feel that's one of the great dilemmas I come up against constantly. And I feel like it's maybe it's an existential thing that, that every generation comes across. Um, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely inherent in the experience of being human. And we've had this hunger to be free of it, particularly as we've adopted more and more a, a language of technocracy to describe the contours and boundaries of our lives. We have this meritocracy always be achieving and this technocracy, the what matters most is technological success and technical sophistication. And meritocracy and technocracy are very intolerant of uncertainty. And as we've probably accidentally, but nonetheless systematically worked to whittle away at these alternative sources of meaning outside meritocracy and technocracy, we're left with an impoverished language for confronting uncertainty. I mean, before the 20th century, there were a lot of things we were very bad at, but we were reasonably good at living with uncertainty. If you, if you, look, at the, if you look at most of the philosophical or religious or cultural traditions of the human past, uncertainty was acknowledged. We didn't love it. We've never loved uncertainty, but we at least had a sense that it existed and had a sense that there were mechanisms by which we could confront it. But in this meritocracy,
struggle in medicine, oh my gosh, is a pressure cooker of meritocracy and technocracy. Just think back to your undergraduate days when you're trying to live the life of the mind but still complete the pre-medical requirements. <laughs> right, right. And what do you think... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, do you think... I, I see a lot about precision medicine and I wonder if that's if enthusiasm about that is also very prevalent in the ICU world. Thinking about uh, the reason that intensivists talk about precision medicine primarily, in my experience, is the failure of the traditional randomized clinical trial. <coughs> We've spent, I, I'm sure, billions of dollars in intensive care, mostly in septic shock and ARDS, but in other domains as well, with large traditional randomized clinical trials, and persistently they are negative, even if you, you get these early glimmers from a phase two, uh, the phase three is basically always negative, and our assumption has been that much of the reason that these phase three trials are negative is that we haven't correctly identified the patients who would benefit from the treatment, and there's a lot of heterogeneity of treatment effect that we see. So there's a lot of work, and, and our group, too, is, is working on endotyping, how, how you figure out the subgroups uh, with a particular disorder who are most likely to be homogeneous in terms of uh, their response to a proposed therapy. The problem, of course, is that with the regulatory bureaucracy and the corporatization of many uh, healthcare centers, the better you endotype, the fewer patients from any given center, and the greater the need for a large number of centers, but coordinating 500 centers to give you six patients each right, right. becomes prohibitively expensive. So I think we have, unfortunately, yet to see whether precision medicine will deliver much of what we're hoping for. Our group at the Center for Humanizing Critical Care is trying what we're calling precision humanism, which is a, a similar kind of idea that you endotype people, but our idea is that you could use this endotyping to clarify uh, or identify default support and communication mechanisms that, not that you'd be forced to have the support mechanism that seems to work best with your endotype, but that would be the default offering to you in the hopes that maybe precision medicine has precision humanism, this careful attention to the specific person in front of you might be of use. And I think that personally has a higher probability of success than biochemical, biomedical uh, identification of relevant endotypes. It, 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 I, by being ever so slightly jaundiced in my view of precision medicine in the ICU, I don't mean to imply that I'm not engaging in some of this research myself and I'm not eager to test out those possibilities, but right. so far in the ICU it is more promise than reality. Yeah, and I've been wondering recently whether, to use your term, um, endotyping might be a strategy that patients or families can try to use 
to try to pre present themselves with uh, in the ICU. You know, I used to think that when people say, what's the best way to communicate with a doctor? In my first book and in general advice, I tell people, I give people, you know, common sense communicative strategies like try to set the agenda and try to come in with important points and try to frame your story in a coherent way, um, try to prioritize. But I wonder whether it might be very important to try to individuate yourself as much as possible uh, and to, to get the clinician a sense of who you are as a person so as to, to, to let them know what is important to you in, in, in bringing you comfort and healing. Part of what I propose in the book, first I spend some time talking about why living wills don't work and have not worked and are a big uh, distracting mess. Um, and then part of it is I try to think about, well, what would be better? What, what would actually solve the problems that living wills correctly identified as problems and have come to think that one possible replacement for a living will is an identification of who you are as a person and permission to talk about bad news. Because uh, a lot of the time what I see happening around, um, happening around these questions that living wills are meant to fix, these problems where the family and the doctor disagree about what direction to go or more broadly, people just wonder what should we do when it, it appears unlikely that recovery will happen. Commonly, there's been failure of communication and um, reluctance on the part of the physician to talk about bad news, and particularly to talk about bad news in a way that's important to people. I've, I've started in the last probably three years uh, when I first meet a person, I focus just on answering their questions and fixing acute medical crises. But then commonly at the end of our first visit, which may last eight minutes if it's a relatively simple case or may last 45 minutes if the person's having a lot of medical troubles, I'll say, in order to communicate well with you, I'd like to ask you three questions. One, how much detail do you like? Do you want every imaginable detail or are you just want the big picture. Two, some people like uh, me to use medical terms and other people like me to use plain English. Where, where are you on that spectrum? And then that is a buildup to the third question, which I say, now, God forbid, we ever have bad news, we need to talk about it. Some people prefer that the doctor be very gentle, and other people prefer blunt, no sugarcoating. Where are you on that spectrum? And I found that that, I'll, I'll tell you just from my own experience, almost everybody says full detail, plain English, no sugarcoating. Right. That's right. probably 85% of the people that I talk to. Right. But just that fact of asking those questions primes them to expect that I care who they are as a person and what their communication, preferred communication method is. And I found something that simple that takes less than a minute is an important way of opening up these communications. And then I find that there are 15% who answer differently. And so I have to adjust my communication strategy. I've had people say, please, I can't bear any bad news at all. My husband would need to be in the room if there's 
very simple things, easy to accommodate, but they're different from these the 85% that I see wanting a relatively straightforward approach to communication. Then you modify it and you communicate with them. And so I think if people came to the encounters with doctors with some sort of direction about communication, not living wills try to imagine the impossible, which is to see the future with perfect clarity and then with a single document to make a definitive statement that would apply under the 12 million different possible circumstances that you might find yourself in. Right. Instead of that saying, our goal is to collaborate and walk together through crisis. This is what you need to know about me in order to be my guide through that experience. I think that would be hugely helpful. And I'm I love it when a family member is able to introspect right off the bat and say, you know, this is this is important to me. This is what I need to um, this is what I need to have from you in order for this to work. And it, it's simple stuff. It's really it's really simple stuff, but we've missed it because we've been so focused on making sure we have our advanced directives filled out or making sure that we've got some structure for not providing expensive care to people in crisis or what, whatever it is that we've gotten activated about as a society, we haven't been able to say, what do you need? As we face this crisis together, how can I best be true to you and your loved one as, a, as people? Yeah. That's crucial. And speaking of introspection, I wanted to switch to another tack, and that's the fact that you are a person that works in two different realms. I mean, you, you butter your bread and spend, I, I imagine, the great majority of your time in professional life as an intensivist and researcher. And, right. um, but you're also very interested in the history of culture and history of religion and, and, and religion as a, as a practice. And how do you, you know, I'll say personally that I find it difficult to bridge those realms. I do both things. And it's, it, it, sometimes in the medical world, it feels like there are certain things one does not mention. And religion in certain circles is one of them. Um, and you know, I wonder how, how you find personally bridging those realms and, and working in both furrows. I think it's an important question, and there's a lot of levels to it. One is a practical question. How does one, as a self-identified religious individual, participate in communities that historically have tended at least in public to not cherish the presence of religious individuals. And some of that has come in the culture wars that have been ongoing since the 1960s, such that with certain religious fundamentalisms, uh, the assumption has been that people who self-identify as religious in public are likely to be deeply anti-scientific are likely to have a lifetime subscription to the Kentucky Creation Museum and this other kind of uh, this other kind of cultural baggage and I think that for me the the tricky part to navigate is you know, being a progressive and an intellectual and an active researcher interesting that uh, commonly we call ourselves researchers instead of scientists and I, I wonder whether that's part yeah, of the that's interesting part of the complex 
society around the meaning of these different uh, endeavors. But how, how do I, as a, a progressive intellectual academic researcher, navigate the fact that many of my colleagues whom I love and admire and really enjoy working with uh, tend to think of religious people as uh, ultra-right-wing fundamentalists. And uh, it's been my experience that the only real choice I have is to be uh, honest and open and uh, and not... Um, and not allow these conflicts between the left fringe and the right fringe to define what it means to be a person or a scientist or a religious person. So uh, I am not a Victorian gentleman. That's not the persona that I project. That's not a persona that's true to me as a person. And I think that helps people to acknowledge that they're not dealing with someone who's likely to start uh, preaching a sermon to them. Uh, but then I've tried to just be open, and if it's I, when I'm at meetings, if I can pull it off, I like to slip away to go to church on a Sunday. Um, and if somebody says, "Where are you going?" I'm not going to dissemble. I'll say, "Oh, I'm going to church. I like to go to church." But I'm not going to say, "Oh, and you should come right. ride along with me." Right. <laughs> Won't it be great for you to rise up from your heathen right. ways? Uh, right. Right. So. I've just tried to be open and honest and non-proselytizing, and fortunately for me, I really love and admire non-religious and religious folk really quite equally, so it's not a strain at all for me to be uh, interested in and enjoy spending time with people who are not religious. The second question is a methodological question. How do you how do you write theology or write religious history and also write science? And I find that um, they feel to me like different flavors in a flavor palette. And just as I would not want to have a meal that was 100% cheese, I don't want to have a life that is 100% hypothesis testing and statistical inference, nor do I want to have a life that is 100% speculation about metaphysics. So for me, methodologically, I like having these two different threads in my life and find them quite refreshing. But it, I think the harder, the harder question is um, that there are people in the world who feel, feel very firmly that no person who is an intellectual or academic has any right to be a religious person or from the other side, no person who's religious has any right to be an intellectual or an academic. And that's harder. You, you will have people, again, to, to borrow a phrase from the Hebrew Bible, you'll, you'll have people who are very attentive to how you pronounce shibboleth versus sibboleth. Right, right. They're very interested to know what camp are you truly in? And, and I think your answer has to be, I'm in the human camp. Yeah, that's that's a great answer. One of the one of the experiences that have been very interesting to have in Baltimore is at you know in New York, I lived in Manhattan, and there was a certain sense in which even as a practicing religious Jew, the very the very religious folks, the right wing folks, were sort of over there in another borough, and I could live in a liberal bubble. And here in Baltimore, my patients and the people I live among are 
are often quite pious, outwardly so. And it's not, you know, God bless is a common salutation. So it's, it's very interesting to see how people are that way outwardly and that can correlate or not with various inward tendencies and to, to see how people are, are also variable in themselves even with this cultural practice. Um, yeah. I, I, one thing I find is that both the science side of me and the religious history side of me provide useful mechanisms for me to understand almost at an anthropological level, although I'm not an anthropologist, what people are doing. Because, you know, when we use certain shibboleths, when we greet people with God bless or God willing, when we talk uh, openly in a proselytizing way about either theism or particular strains of atheism, we're doing something. And for me, I found it very helpful to step back and just to wonder, what what are the cultural dynamics at play and, and what are the personal dynamics at play here in an individual person's life? And I found it very helpful for me too when, as will always happen, I think every practicing clinician has been screamed at at some point by a patient or a family member. I've, I've found that um, that my experience in writing religious history and in thinking about models of human behavior and needs for this humanizing critical care work, that I'm able to, when somebody's screaming, to not immediately go into my adrenaline overcharged state of defending myself or feeling rage, but instead to think, what is the what is the sadness that this screaming represents? What what is the cause here? Uh, and to see it more as a religious phenomenon with my religious history hat on, or as a diagnostic clue with my biomedical hat on. And, and it's helped me a lot, I think, to be able to say, oh, th this is what I've done wrong in communicating with this person. Let me fix that. Or just to say, this is an existential scream of despair. The fact that it's addressed toward me has nothing to do with me as a person. What I need to do is honor that existential despair and show respect to the individual suffering it. So I, I found it very useful, even if, you know, I think it would be hard for me to have a big dinner party where everybody was extremely right-wing pious. You know, that, that then comes into your, your place where you relax, where you're among friends. Now, I have a lot of good friends who are conservative, very pious individuals, um, but I would say on average that my friends do tend to be more progressives that have a, a more clearly shared sense of the world uh, with me than others do. But, it, it, you know, these are hard, and these, these are going to be true. These are going to be true for all of us, regardless of what we're doing professionally yeah. or, or right. whether, we're, whether we're gardening in two uh, furrows, as I think you yeah. indicated. I think, you know, and I think it's a uh, really um 
remarkable to, to it was remarkable to me reading this book for the first time that someone in the very technical realm of intensive care um, asked these basic questions too, and that is, what is this person saying, and why are they saying it, and what can I do to respond? And so, uh, and I want to thank you for sharing your impressions and your thoughts, and remind people to check out your book through the Valley of Shadows. And uh, thank you for your time and in, in, in chatting. And I always look forward to hearing what you're up to. Thanks, Zach. It's always a pleasure. Thank you.